Pentecostal Church's Commission on Justice and Peace. And I've known him in Kairos and other justice-related uh, gatherings. Anyhow, uh, you are in for a great treat because today he's going to go through the history of the church's involvement in social justice, which is quite exciting one because that was my life until I retired and came to Lethbridge. Anyhow, uh, Joe is a very respected uh, activist for social justice, uh, starting with uh, his service in overseas in Latin America, uh, in uh, uh, Canadian Council, uh, Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, as well as uh, 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 Citizens for Public Justice, etc., which is his current position. Anyhow, uh, I don't think I should spend too much time introducing and talking about him uh, because I would like to give him as much time as possible, except to say, please turn off your cell phones. Secondly, please don't forget to put the $14 in the plate for lunch. Uh, and thirdly, uh, please remember that he has a book which is piled up at the entrance. It will cost you $14, no, $15, which he will sign after the session. However, uh, I should ask uh, Joe to come up here and uh, speak about the history of Canadian Christians' activities for social justice. He's got a lot to say. 13 minutes is too short. But anyway, Joe, please. Well, thank you so much. Thanks especially to Tad. It's great to know that wherever you go in Canada, you can always run into people that are involved in these kinds of, of issues. So I would just like to say, that for those of you that don't know about Citizens for Public Justice, I'll make a little uh, introduction to that group. If you want more information, there's a fellow over here by the name of Everett that can tell you all about it. But Citizens for Public Justice is an ecumenical group, a group of many uh, Christian faith backgrounds that's been around this year for 55 years. And it works really on three particular issues, on uh, poverty in Canada, on issues of environmental justice, especially climate change, and we work also on refugee rights. So if you're interested in any of that, Please uh, chat with Everett. He's been involved in CPJ even longer than I. But what I'd like to do today, after I thank you for the wonderful introduction, Tad, and for SACPA for having me here, is to talk a little bit about the history and the future, perhaps. We'll get into that in the uh, time that we have to talk about uh, some of the question and answers. We may have some conversation about what's the future of doing justice work in Canada among faith communities. What role can they play? There has been a shadow history, and there's been a good history, 
and uh, often people don't know or recall the history. So how can we how can we bring that how can we bring that forward? I did put together just uh, not even a year old this little book called Journeys to Justice: Reflections on Canadian Christian Activism that Tad mentioned. Uh, the reason for the book is all got to do with uh, one of my evil progeny. We have twins. And a few years ago, my son came home from university and uh, he received for Christmas uh, a present, and a book, which he began to devour. Now, I thought anybody that went to, somebody, some people ask me, I don't know if any of you have kids that ever went to school in Nova Scotia or if you did, but sometimes people ask me, well, what did your son study at university? And I said, well, he went to Nova Scotia. I think he majored in Alexander Keith's and minored in Moosehead. <laughs> but when he came home that Christmas, he devoured this book, Nelson Mandela's book, Long Walk to Freedom, which is a wonderful story about Nelson and the struggle for uh, the ending apartheid in South Africa. When Nelson died, of course, and there was lots of media coverage of this uh, uh, of his life and so on, and Canada's role. They talked about the role that Joe Clark is uh, foreign minister from here in High River, I guess, and, and Brian Mulroney and the role that they played, and I found myself getting more and more and more upset with the coverage. Because I remember in those years being a very young man and in my 20s, and how the churches had been working for a long time about solving some of the problems about apartheid and what was Canada's role in that. And so why get mad at my son? He wasn't even a sparkle in his father's eye way back then. Uh, he was only, you know, he was in his 20s and he didn't know the history. And so I'm going to talk about some of these stories and perhaps the responsibility of those of us of a certain age, many of you were probably involved in some of those issues and struggles. And how can we pass the best of the tradition on, the best of the stories on, to try and help build the future. So let me move to another way to look at this issue and say that last year I was really enthralled by a book that was uh, prepared by three academics, one from Ottawa, so I met him and we had a great chat, two from the University of Toronto, and it was called um, Religion and Canadian Party Politics. And these academics thought that there were three major themes in their book. The book looked at a range of the ways that uh, Christians uh, in, it got engaged in politics in Canada. To summarize a whole book is not fair, but I'll try and do it in three uh, little steps. The first kind of thing that they mentioned was, in Canadian history, party politics was kind of looked at and religion was kind of looked at. There was one party that kind of represented the Catholic vote and all of the Catholics voted for them. And there was another party that kind of represented the Protestant vote and all Protestants voted for them. Do you know what I mean? Does that ring a bell? These authors say that's no longer the case in Canada, that the voting uh, from religious, uh, whatever religious uh, organization you belong to is not broken down clearly in those two groups anymore. That a matter of fact, what they said, what matters now is what they called evangelical affiliation. And what they meant by that, it, 
that you could correlate electoral preferences to that type of religious uh, experience that, you, that your community was a part of. And that more, you can see this in the United States, which is way more defined than in Canada, and it's not fair to, uh, to, uh, to compare. But in the United States, of course, you have huge numbers of evangelical, uh, well-known evangelical ministers supporting not only the Republican Party, but especially, and even the, uh, the Trump administration. This is not the same in Canada for a number of reasons. Uh, and there's a, there's a broader breach, but there's also something like evangelicals uh, are around 11 or 12% of uh, the Canadian population. It's much, much larger, well over 30 in the United States. But that's where they see this breaking down of the vote now. And they also suggest in this book, what are the issues that people who are, uh, have this evangelical affiliation and tend to be involved in more conservative issues, what are the kinds of things, what are the kind of issues that make sense for them? And those are <laughs> issues like uh, religious freedom, uh, sexual education, in the schools, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation issues, the abortion question. Those are the big issues for this group of people. And in the book, the authors end with this statement, most faith-based advocacy has been mobilized in Canada by religious conservatives. When I met with one of the authors, I said, well, you know, there is another story. There is another story. And uh, that's something that we looked at in the book, uh, Journeys to Justice. So what I wanted to do is perhaps not say that these fellows are wrong, but say there's a broader appreciation and something that maybe not all of us know about. And there are some things we can celebrate and some things that we can learn going forward. So let's get, let's get into it. Let's see if these slides will work. The fellow uh, holding the, uh, the fellow with the pink shirt here is John Foster. Uh, John Foster worked for the United Church of Canada, and John, uh, in one of the first chapters of the book, talks about an experience way back in the 1970s. Now this was important to me, I must say. You know, the stories of people being involved in social justice issues are not just historical kind of events that live on shelves. What happened in the 70s uh, in 73, as a matter of fact, was in Chile, a South American country, the first democratically elected socialist government in the Americas was elected in 1970. And in September 11, remember that famous date, September 11? September 11, 1973, the army, led by General Pinochet, carried out a bloody coup and took over in Chile. It was organized by the CIA, supported by uh, Richard Nixon and his uh, Secretary of State at the time, a fellow by the name of Kissinger, that went on to be famous for other reasons, of course. So what happened at this time was in Chile, many people were immediately uh, grabbed by the military, held in the large soccer stadium, and torture uh, was carried out. Uh, people were disappeared. People were uh, thrown into the sea from helicopters. Uh, people were killed, bodies were found floating in the river, and the churches responded. People like John and others uh, wanted the Canadian government to know that this was not acceptable, 
And Canada didn't really have a refugee policy at the time. We had accepted in the 50s a large group of people that came from Hungary after the Soviets uh, sent into the, the tanks. In 60s, you remember the Prague Spring in 68, Canada accepted a whole bunch of Czech people that were fleeing from the Soviets when they sent the tanks into Prague. Uh, here we are in the 70s. Uh, without a, we'd, we'd done these special programs, but, but there was really nothing to be done. The churches ended up, George Cram from the, the Anglican Church, uh, a Scarborough missionary priest who had been in Latin America, and a fellow from Quebec who actually later became a bishop, the three of them go off to Chile, interview people in the prison, and tell these incredible stories of family members that were saying, yes, we need to get out of here, we need to get, uh, come to Canada, but you know what? I know of someone over here who is in much more danger, and if you could do anything to bring them to Canada, that would be important. At the same time, the Canadian ambassador, who was out of the country at the time of the coup, he was in Argentina buying a new car for the embassy, his staff, opened up the embassy and opened up the ambassador's house. And a lot of people that had to flee from the regime found sanctuary there. So could we get those people to Canada quickly as well? And the churches did this. They tell stories back in those days of going, priests and pastors, uh, people like John, going to, uh, to Parliament Hill and the RCMP to meet Mitchell Sharp, who was the foreign minister at the time, and arguing that these people should be allowed to come to Canada to save their lives. And the RCMP were taking photos of them uh, from the second floor of the parliament buildings and so on. Uh, I think all these kinds of things are kind of outdated security measures now, but there, there was a worry that these people were uh, not going to settle well in Canada and be helpful and so on. And in the end, of course, what happened is that many refugees managed to come from Chile uh, to Canada, and it was an amazing thing. I say this touches that my twin sister ended up meeting one of these people, and I now have five Chilean nieces and nephews. And uh, the first one is named after uh, He's, he's named after a, a fellow that was held, tortured, and killed, the best friend of my uh, brother-in-law. And so, you know, the, the, the work that, were, that was carried out, they're just not stories. They're kind of things that have entered into the Canadian mosaic and our, our flesh and our blood, uh, and these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of wonderful things that were carried out by people at that, at that time. So that was the experience of Chile. This is, a, this is a Mennonite fellow by the name of Bill Jansen. And I love to tell the story about uh, Bill because uh, many of you know, I, well, I'm, at, I'm told that in Lethbridge a lot of congregations and other people are, are doing a lot of good work to settle uh, Syrian refugees that have come to town and, and others. Well, did you know, did you know that it was the churches that actually first developed the first sponsor, master sponsorship agreement with the federal government to allow for the private sponsorship of refugees. And it was actually this guy who designed it. He's still around. Uh, and as a matter of fact, because I'm away on Monday, he's got to teach a class for me, and he's going to talk about that. So he, we're still forcing him into action. But Bill worked for the Mennonite Central Committee at the time. And in 1979, there was, a, there was the, remember the boat people, the people that were fleeing Vietnam and so on? And uh, so what Mennonite Central Committee looked at was the possibility of 
individuals would be interested in having these, uh, these folks come to their communities and so on, but there was a lot of uh, financial responsibility and the Mennonites decided, look, if we could sign an agreement with the government that would say, uh, we'll take responsibility as a larger organization and if we can name congregations that could take a family, that will allow them to get started and the government won't have to worry that these people will be left with no, uh, no support in case something untoward or difficult happens, you see? So uh, they started negotiating this. And there's a lovely, uh, there's a book released just last year of four gentlemen who worked in, uh, in Immigration Canada at the time and they, they said, you know, the, the one fellow was mandated to negotiate with the Mennonites and to be tough as they could possibly be. And he ended up coming back to his superiors and saying, you know, this is, this is great. You won't believe it. We, we got to stop trying to push, push, push with these people. They're willing to do everything for us. They're willing to set this up. They want to help these people come here. And we've got to get down and do this. And very quickly, the government and the Mennonites worked together. Uh, an agreement was signed. The first master agreement was signed. Bill tells that story. And then very quickly, within weeks, the Catholics and the Anglicans and the United Church and others uh, also signed master agreements with the government. And now you have this program that we saw very effectively taking place in 2015 when Alan Kurdi's little body uh, floated ashore in that Turkish beach and Canada wanted to respond to the needs of, of, uh, of the people fleeing Syria and for many other countries. So it's a, there's a kind of a great story to be told there eh, with, with Bill. Now here's, here's Moira Hutchison. Moira Hutchison was raised Anglican, but ended up marrying a character that Tad probably knows, uh, Roger Hutchison, who was a theologian of uh, United Church at the University of Toronto. And Moira was all involved. Tad could tell this story, so you can ask him details. If I get anything wrong, he can correct me. But this is the churches working around uh, opposing apartheid. Well, what could be done to oppose apartheid in South Africa? Why would we, why would we care? The churches got together and looked at w corporate social responsibility way back when. As I, as I think about this, the first time I gave a sermon about apartheid and how we should oppose it was in the United Church in Regina, Saskatchewan, Sunset United Church in 1979. But I mean, this, this struggle went on for years and years, right? And what the churches did was they would go as shareholders to meetings of large corporations, Canadian corporations, the major banks, power corporation run by a fellow called Conrad Black, many other corporations, and they would try to stop loans or investment in South Africa until apartheid was ended. Uh, and so for years and years, what happened was the, sometimes the mic, there's stories of how the mic would be shut off from shareholders, church shareholders who tried to make their presentation. Uh, some, they tell the story about they been, began to develop relationships and many of the CEOs would meet with them before the annual meeting because they didn't want surprises at the meeting and they wanted to, to see what could be done. And Moira even suggests that some of the incredible work was done to try and push the Canadian government to uh, try and make uh, change in South Africa and how that had to be done. How the, moder the, the primate of the Anglican Church in Canada, uh, Ted Scott, was appointed to the eminent persons group of the Commonwealth that tried to, 
that tried to find a way to mediate between the government of South Africa and the African National Congress. I can remember uh, being in Regina and organizing all kinds of folks. We'd get these little stickers and we put them on checks whenever we had to write a check. No bank loans to South Africa. Now, I, here my son was getting all excited a couple of years ago when Nelson died and he was reading this book and so on and so on. I don't think my son even knows what a check is. <laughs> you know? Uh, people, we don't do that these days. But those were the kind of creative ways the church folks, not only uh, the leadership would go to annual meetings of corporations, so the highest levels of church people were involved in that kind of thing as shareholders, but also trying to do public education to help, uh, to help Canadians move forward, to write letters to Parliament, to encourage corporate, uh, corporations to change, and, and so on. Anybody recognize this fella besides Tad, Tad here? This is a former moderator of the United Church who lives in Calgary. This is Bill, that's right, somebody else, yes, Bill. Bill and I are gonna do a couple of things in Calgary this weekend. There's a chapter in the, in the book about Bill. And Bill Phipps was moderator towards the end of the 90s, and Bill decided that yeah, he was gonna kind of develop a theme. You're only a moderator for a, for a couple of years. And so his theme was ecological, just, uh, ecological justice. His theme was uh, economic justice. And is there a history? Now in his tradition, in the United Church tradition, the social gospel tradition about uh, economic justice for uh, society and what about inequity and what was happening to the economy at the time, there was great unemployment and so on in Canada. And so Bill created something called the Moderator's Consultation on the Economy. And they went across the country, they produced uh, four or five books, they did, uh, there was this new thing called the internet. And they developed these uh, sessions where, whereby people could share uh, information and be involved in conversations and so on. And then I remember being invited, uh, at the time I was working for the Catholic bishops in Canada, we were invited to a big meeting in the railway room in, uh, in Ottawa on Parliament Hill where they uh, presented the, the final uh, recommendations of this consultation on the economy and people from every single political party were there and debating each other uh, about uh, folks from the Reform Party wouldn't agree with the NDP of course. Uh, the NDP guy was Bill Blakey uh, who was the United Church Minister from Winnipeg. Uh, who the Reform person was uh, uh, the first reformed person ever elected, she was there. I want to say Deb, something, woman who rode the motorcycle. Deborah Gray. Deborah Gray, yeah. So but a, wonderful, a wonderful meeting of lots of people to discuss these issues. So here was the church playing a role in bringing people together to talk about what could or should be done to make Canada uh, a better place. So that was, uh, there's a, a bill talking about that in this. Here's a fellow uh, whose name is Peter Notaboom. Uh, Dutch guy. Peter tells a story in the book that is not a story of just one group, but uh, around the, just into the 2000s now, uh, there's the issue of uh, health care in Canada was a big concern. And so Roy Romano, after he'd finished being the Premier of Saskatchewan, was appointed by government to have a royal commission on health care, what should be done about health care in Canada. And so we created something called the Ecumenical Healthcare Network. Uh, and what happened in that whole process was over the period of a couple of years, 
we brought church people together and we talked to people who were parish nurses, uh, people that were involved in healthcare. Some of, the, some of the churches still run hospitals at the time. What is it that we'd like to see? And that you can still find on the, on the webpage, the website of the Canadian Council of Churches, uh, different, we use these little broadsheets on five or six issues, profit or nonprofit medicine, the pharmacare issue. You know, this is an issue that's gonna come up in our election this year, this October, the, the federal level. I'm, I'm, it won't be a surprise if that happens, but the churches way back 18 years ago or so were on record suggesting that this should be done, uh, that we should have pharmacare in Canada. A whole range of issues that we were, that we were, that we were discussing at the time. And what was, what was kind of uh, fascinating about the conversation with, uh, with Pete that I might uh, just tell you about was, uh, I asked him in each of these interviews, you know when you're not smart enough to write your own book, you just interview people? So that's what I did. Interviewed 10 of these people. And the, the idea was to, to, to Pete, what, what was it that got this started? And he said, well, you know, he works in the Council of Churches. He's now the general secretary. He says, what happens is one or two people come along, they're really keen on an issue. They try and find a way to bring some other like-minded people together if they know them in other churches. And then they look for a kind of way, some place to house it. In this case, it was the Council of Churches, so it could be pretty broad. There are 25 churches that are members of the, of the council. And then, we, and then they start working. And then they start reaching out to others that haven't been invited. When the brief of the churches was developed and presented uh, by Janet Somerville, who was the general secretary of the Council of Churches, and Dave Frimmer, who was the, later went on to be the head of the Lutheran Seminary in Kitchener-Waterloo, Roy Romano made the recommendation of the, of the churches in our brief, the first recommendation in his Royal Commission report. And he called his report building on values. Basically what he said was, if Canadians start looking at Medicare and our Medicare system from the basis of what are the values that we really want to preserve, care for each other, the common good, uh, the churches had developed a charter that he read, and so then, actually, I'm wrong, the churches developed a covenant. We called it a covenant. So Roy Romano wasn't going to use religious language, like a covenant, but his first recommendation was that before we decide to change anything in, in healthcare in Canada, we should develop a charter of the values, the most important things we need to do, and then look at ways that we can improve the system. So it was kind of, a, it was kind of an interesting uh, experience there. And finally, is there anybody that recognizes this young woman? Who's that? That's Jennifer Henry, who's the head of Kairos. Thank you. So one of, the, one of the stories was, as the churches developed through the 60s, 70s, and then 80s, especially in the 70s, we created these ecumenical, what we called the, the coalitions for justice. And so there was a coalition on human rights in Latin America that I chaired for 10 years. There was a coalition on Africa. There was a coalition that dealt with uh, corporate responsibility, the folks that worked uh, on the South Africa campaign and others. There was a coalition that worked on Aboriginal rights. There was a coalition of this and that and the other. You know, there were, there were 11 or 12 of them. Around the year, the Jubilee year, the year 2000, 
a big issue was the, uh, the debt campaign, uh, the international debts of poor countries. What could we do? And even the Pope at the time came out with a, uh, uh, an encyclical talking about ending the odious debts of, uh, that were putting down uh, the possibilities of development of, of countries, poor countries in the global south. Now Canada at the time not only had bilateral debts, debts between Canada and certain poor countries, we had multilateral debts where we participated in the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, and we were part of this, all of these decisions of the wealthy countries to impose structural adjustment on poor countries and make them make cuts to social services and health care and so on, uh, so they could pay back their debts. And I can remember uh, living in Central America, when I lived in Nicaragua, for example, uh, pregnant women coming to the hospital before giving birth and having two or three in a bed uh, because there just wasn't enough spaces before they could give birth. Or families having to bring uh, food to the hospital because the hospital, the healthcare system, couldn't possibly even feed people well. So how do we expect people to get better? if they really can't even uh, eat well while they're, while they're uh, trying to recover. So, and uh, education, you know, the, the whole problem of people not getting good education in countries of the global south. At the same time as we're demanding that they pay back these debts, well, some of the debts were foolishly given out by us when we had too much money in banks of the north, uh, and some of them were given to dictatorships. Why should we expect anything uh, to be paid back when those people were trying to get rid of the dictators, but if they were during the Cold War, if they were close to the West, we would kind of give them money, and if they were close to the East, the Soviets would give them money. Uh, it, was a, it was a real mess. And so what happened was we brought together, boy, there must have been 30, sometimes there'd be 30 groups around the table, you might remember, and we, we called it the Canadian Ecumenical Jubilee initiative for the Jubilee year. And we went back to Leviticus and we looked at the Bible when debts every certain uh, a number of years should be forgiven. That was what the, the, uh, the law was that was passed down in the Old Testament. Well, isn't it time to look at some of these odious debts and do something about that? And so indeed, that's what we, uh, that's what we did. And in effect, uh, there was a great success in that uh, Mr. Kretchen at one time in Winnipeg made the announcement that Canada would cancel all of the bilateral debts that we had with uh, outstanding with some poorer countries. So that was, now there's good stories about this. What happened around this time was that we collected uh, petitions, signed petitions. So maybe in your congregation, if you're part of one, you might remember, we went around everywhere. We had trade unionists doing it as well. We had whomever would do it. Uh, and we thought we had collected 460,000 petitions, the largest petition in Canadian history. And we were very proud of that. That record lasted one week. And then this guy came, came along called Rick Mercer. This hour has 22 minutes. And he put up on the internet a petition calling for Stockwell Day to change his name to Doris Day. <laughs> we were no longer the biggest petition. <laughs> but we did move the art to 6-4.
thank you for your attention. There'll be time for questions and answer. What I should say is that these people, the 10 stories I've told, I've only mentioned a few of them here, these people are kind of, they lead us to see that there have been ways moving forward. Maybe there are some ways we can learn to go forward more effectively. And these people, for me, have been detonators of hope in our world. So thank you for your attention. I look forward to chatting more.